Next Chapter Podcasts. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at microsoft.com slash AI for all. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hey, everybody. Before we get into the episode, I want to tell you about the 10 news from Next Chapter Podcast and Small But Mighty Media. If you have any kids in your life and you want to help them understand current events in a way that isn't all doom and gloom, which is really hard because the world is F-U-C-K-E-D, the 10 has you covered. It's 10 minutes of news and information that goes beyond the headlines and tries to give kids context for issues going on in the world along with jokes and trivia. Who doesn't love that? Funny, information, you get everything. The 10 also features conversations with interesting guests like author Shannon Messenger, astronaut Terry Virts, and even Dr. Anthony Fauci, who I'm gonna look like in five years because I'm 42 and Jewish. Season two just wrapped, but all summer long, they're airing special episodes of their best bingeable content for those long road trips. So listen to the 10 news wherever you get your podcasts or go to the 10 news.com to learn more. You should do it now back to the show. The 500, the 500, us down through that 2012 edition so it ain't nothing to new hundreds more to go and in need of a friend the king of peace for angelo talking the 500 until the end talking the 500 until the end with my man jm on the 500 Talking the 500 until the end I would sacrifice anything Come what might For the sake of having you near In spite of a warning voice That comes in the night And repeats how it yells in my ear Don't you know, little fool You never can win Why not use your mentality Step up Wake up to reality But each time I do Just the thought of you Makes me stop just before I begin Cause I've got you Under my skin I've got you under my skin Might be one of the greatest songs ever written It's by Frank Sinatra From Songs from Swingin' Lovers from 1956 and it's also number 308 on the 500. What's up, everybody? I am your host, Josh Adam Myers, and I love you. 
I love each and every one of you. I want to tell you guys something because I record these uh, sometimes weeks in advance. Um, do you guys like the band Sigur Ross? S-I-G-U-R-R-O-S. They're Scandinavian. I think the guy makes up the lyrics much like I do. Uh, I was really, really lucky a few weeks ago to have a show on the Upper West Side. And as I got off the train, I saw they were performing at the Beacon. The show had just started at 8 and it was like 8.15. So I was like, ah, man, I'll miss that. So I get to the show. They were like, you ran too late. So we don't, we, we already moved on with the show. It was, it's a long story, but they were like, we're so sorry. We apologize. And I was like, oh no, no, no. And I go to the beacon and I go up to the counter guy. I go, Hey, do you have any tickets left? It says sold out. And the guy's like, yeah, we got two $95 ticket and $125 ticket. I'm like, what's the $125 ticket? He goes, you're in the second row. I'm like, booyah, booyah, time to do ya. So I buy the ticket, I walk in, the room's completely dark, everybody's sitting, it's silent, except for the light coming from the stage and the music. And for the next two and a half hours, because they, they did an hour and a half, they took a 15, 20 minute intermission, and then they came back. It was one of the best concerts I've ever seen. So good that I went back the next night, which wasn't as good because I was sitting next to a dude who 100% uh, that was the first thing he has done out of his house post January or post March 2020. And uh, he kind of creeped me out because like there's some weird people here in New York. Uh, I would love to know your thoughts on the band Cigaros. Tell me if you like them. Um, that album with the, I don't know what it's called. It's untitled with the ellipticals or whatever those little like things are. Uh, I've been listening to that like nonstop. Great, great band. Go see him live if you can. Um, and because of that, send me a message. Tell me what you think about it. Uh, what do I have coming up? JFL, Montreal, July 20th. Um, I'm doing a Shimmy Shimmy Ya in LA, July 24th, I think, or the 25th. Uh, we are doing uh, shows every night at the Comedy Cellar, The Stand, and New York Comedy Club. Check joshadammyers.com for tickets. I will be at JFL Escapes in Cancun in November, Skankfest. All right, Patreon. Let's promote that. Let's promote the Patreon because we have a staff of employees that are great and they deserve your money. Um, I don't get anything from this. I barely make anything off of this show. I'm doing it for the sole love of it. So for $5 or more, you support the show. If you listen and you're not paying, you're stealing. Yeah, I said that. $5 gets you so much. What does it get you? Well, we get you, we give you merch. I think I got this huge box of shit in my lobby that I'm never pulling out here because my producer Jeremiah sent me an enormous box of this of the merchandise that I don't want. So, it's just taking up space, uh, which means that he had so much cuz he's given it out to everybody. So, and it's great. It's hoodies, it's t-shirts, I think there's hats. You get all of that, plus you get to ask questions to the guests. It's on our Patreon, and don't you want to know what Gary Goldman has to say about the Beatles and your thoughts? So go to patreon.com backslash the 500 podcast where you will get to ask those questions. You will get free merch, and you get the videos a day early because uh, on YouTube they come out on Thursday. You get them on Wednesday. Um, $5 patreon.com backslash the 500 podcast support the show everybody alrighty Frankie Sinatra which was actually my first concert because my dad went to go see him uh, at the Capitol Center and I was in my mom's belly uh, arguably one of the greatest uh, musicians singers of all time 
And uh, today we have a guest that worked with him for many, many years, the one and only Tom Driesen. Uh, Tom uh, opened for Frank Sinatra for 13 years, toured the nation. He's also performed with Smokey Robinson, Liza, Liza Minnelli, Liza, whatever, Sammy Davis Jr. He's been on The Tonight Show 60 times. He's got a book called Still Standing, My Journey from Streets and Saloons to the Stage and Sinatra. Get it and enjoy this episode. Review, rate, all the stuff you can do uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Follow me at Josh Adam Myers on all social media. I post clips uh, Monday through Friday. Um, Share them, like them, help me out, guys. JoshAdamMyers.com for tickets. Email the podcast at 500podcasts at gmail.com. Follow the Facebook group run by a crazy person named Evan. And for all things 500, go to the website, the500podcast.com. That is... Being said, Songs for Swingin' Lovers by Frank Sinatra. Booyah. Are you ready to rock and roll? I'm, I'm like Delta. I'm ready when you are. I'm, I've been ready because I've been waiting to talk about this record for ages because I grew up uh, in a household where my dad loved the crooners. He loved Tony Bennett. He loved Frank Sinatra. I mean, like I, I grew up in a very, very eclectic music household when it comes to the music of like the forties and the fifties. My mom listened to a little bit of rock, but my dad was, was this, this is what he loved. And he loved Frank Sinatra. And when we were getting ready to do this, um, I, it, it's me and Emily, my booker, both were like, what about Tom? Because we've never met. We both worked the store. We both worked the factory, both all the clubs in LA. But I know you have such a deep connection, not just to this record, but to Frank Sinatra. So why don't, and I would love for you to kind of take us through your history with Frank Sinatra. Like, I mean, even start back as a kid, like, cause obviously you probably, you know, you're what, five years older than me. You're what, about 40, 45, 46 years old? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. I knew I was going to like you, but geez, I'm crazy about you now. Right? Oh, right on, dude. Right on, man. So uh, did you grow up listening to Frank? Here, here's the first time I met Frank. Uh, in, in fact, I'll digress. I, I do a one-man show now called The Man Who Made Sinatra Laugh. I love and it. Basically, it's, it's stand-up comedy. You know, the, 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 a film introduces me. Dennis Farina, God rest his soul, introduces me. I go out and I do stand-up for about 30 yeah. minutes. And I segue to a bar. And there's a bottle of Jack Daniels on the bar. And, and I tell a funny story and all and the audience laughs, all the lights go out. And Frank comes on the screen and he's singing to me. It's quarter to three. There's no one in the place except you and me, you know, and blah, blah, blah. So I'm behind the bar. It's like he's singing to me. When he goes off screen, the spotlight hits me. And now I'm in a, in a bar and I've come home. And I tell the audience, the first time I heard that voice, I was 10 years old, shining shoes in a bar on the south side of Chicago. I shine shoes in all the taverns to help feed my brothers and sisters. And Frank was on the jukebox. And I take the audience from that little boy, 10 years old, hearing Frank Sinatra on the jukebox in South Side of Chicago to one day carrying his coffin out of a church in Beverly Hills, California. Wow. So on that journey. So that's the first time I heard Frank, you know, when I was a little boy shining shoes in the park. But even, you know, all the, where I grew up at, if you played a word association game with me, you said, if you said uh, love, I'd say mom. If you said uh, baseball, I'd say Chicago Cubs. If you said show business, I'd say Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr., Dean Martin. That's where, and, and where I grew up at. They were the epitome of what show business is really all about, live entertainment. Yeah. Electrifying audiences 
with their mere presence. You know, Frank Sinatra would walk out to a microphone and before he even got to the microphone, he created more excitement in that audience than most people do with their whole act. Why? Why was, I mean, and because and, and, I, like, I always say this to people when they're like, like, ah, I don't get Elvis, I don't get the Beatles. And I'm like, you will never understand because, and I don't even understand, even though I love their music, how big they were. Like, what was the fascination with him? Like, he's just this, this dude from New Jersey. Yeah, but he was larger than life in this respect. You know, forget about the fact that he truly was the greatest pop singer of all time. You know, uh, he also was a brilliant actor. He did 61 films. He won the Academy Award. One night sitting around at his home, <clears throat> all the women had gone to bed and, and he had all the house guests. It was Gregory Peck and it was uh, Kirk Douglas. It was uh, 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 Jack Lemmon, uh, Clint Eastwood. It was- uh, Oh my God. Wagner. <laughs> we're all sitting around and they were talking film. And uh, of course, I'm like a fly in the wall. They were talking about directing and film and acting. And I noticed they paid such great reverence to Frank. And so I'm curious because out here in LA, I mean, I studied acting in Chicago and out here, everybody wants to tell you who they studied with, you know? And I was curious, I said, Frank, did you study acting? And Gregory Peck grabbed my arm and said, acting lessons would have ruined him. He was a diamond in the rough you didn't fool with. The thing is when you gave Frank Sinatra a song, it became a script. What did the writer feel the night the writer took pen in hand? He would immerse himself in that lyric and become that lonely guy in the bar whose woman left him and he's never gonna find love again. And you felt that. And you felt the joy of the song as well. You know, aside from all that, um, he, you know, he, aside from his music and his acting, you know, he, in Brazil, as a young guy, he drew 175,000 people in a foreign country. In Japan, and when he was 78 years old, he sold out a 20,000 seat arena he wasn't a, a national star. He was an international star. And then above all of that, is he in the mob? I could do an I could do a ninety minute talk about Frank Sinatra and talk about all of his great achievements and my friendship with him and the relationship I had with him. And when I'm done, I'll say any questions. And the very first question is, was Frank Sinatra in the mafia? <laughs> so what? that all of that mystique, all of that about him, that aura around him, you know. So seeing him at 10 years old, all right, so you're in Chicago, you're 10 years old, you're shining shoes. Obviously, at that point, he's already a star, right? He's already, is he already global, like, at that level that you're saying, or is it just like? Yeah, no, no, sure. And, but then he had, he had the down years, you know, he, you know, after, for a while there, he had like three years where he was really on his rear end. You know, and, and he got the movie From Here to Eternity. It saved his career. Uh, and he, there's a great story about that. I can tell you about that. Is that the, God, wait, is that the Godfather story where, where they, uh, the mob, quote unquote, might have said, I want Frank to be in this movie. And if you don't, I'll fucking. And, and, none of, and absolutely none of that was true. And the greatest, oh, man. the greatest disgrace of that is Frank Sinatra did a screen test for Harry Cohn. Of, of Maggio. He knew he could play that role. He read the book from her to eternity and he wanted that role. Maggio was him. Uh, he's a street guy from Hoboken, New Jersey. And he wanted that role. What other people were screen testing. They wanted Eli Wallach for that role. Eli Wallach had, was on Broadway and couldn't uh, do, he finally couldn't do it. And Ava Gardner was very, very dear friends with Harry Cohn's wife. So Ava Gardner kept calling Harry Cohn's wife saying, Frank's right for that role. You've got to get Frank in that role. And finally, one night, Harry Cohn, they called in the middle of dinner. And Harry Cohn said, after dinner, we'll look at the screen test again. And he looked at the screen test. He said, yeah, he could do it. And Frank got that role. Now, he got it because also 
if you remember, if you remember the movie From Air to Eternity, Frank told me that when he went in to do that screen test, he said to the director, what do you want from me? And the director said, Frank, the guy's drunk in the bar. You've been around a lot of drunks. Play it, play it the way you see it. <clears throat> when Frank did that scene where he walked up to the bar and he shrunk and he grabbed those olives and he shook the dice like they were dice. Come on, seven, he threw the olives down the bar. That was an ad lib. That was an ad lib. And when Frank said to me, he said when the director went cut, the whole crew applauded him and cheered him. And he got choked up telling me that story. He said those wonderful people on that set that, that applauded him. Now, long story short, he, that's why he, how he got that role because of his good acting. He later saw Mario Puzo, who wrote the book, The Godfather, at a party, and he, he confronted him and said, you know, you, you son of a bitch, you wrote a book that you paralleled my life and made it look like I only got that film through Mob Connections, which was an absolute lie. It was because of his great acting skills. You know? Sure, sure. So, so, all right, so like this record came out when, Adam, what, March 1956. So this is after the down years the down years are what yeah. the early 50s yeah yeah this is after so, so this is the height is this the height of sinatra like is this this is the second coming yeah well it, it is the second coming yeah and it's also when, when he, he starts swinging tunes swinging songs a little bit better too you know he 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 evolved as a singer in, in the earlier years he was a crooner not unlike bing crosby who was was one of his idols you know but but then you know, his interpretation of songs, his interpretation of lyrics. You know, um, Charlton Heston once said the most profound thing. He said, to watch Frank Sinatra sing a song is like watching a four-minute film, a four-minute movie. You know, because, <laughs> yeah, again, uh, you know, you know and so, but on this one here, it, it was songs for swinging lovers. And, of course, on this album here, he was swinging tunes at that time. And, and it was a hip guy. And the songs were like hip, you know. Um, you know, uh, every time it rains, it rains. You know, pennies from heaven. You know, oh, this, I can tell you right now, this is one of the easiest listens to a record we've ever done on this podcast for me. I mean, I put it on as I walked through the Chicago airport when I was on a layover, and I was like, I mean, it just made dealing with the TSA and everything better. And then I went and got my Jamba Juice, and I'm like, all right, the bop, deep, doot, scootily, do. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, you can't not like this. I don't understand how, I'm still trying to figure out why was there a down period prior to this record? If he's arguably the greatest pop sensation in the world, what caused society, in a sense, to, to push him down? You know, he went to me from a crooner stage 
to this swinging stage. Okay, so this is different than what he was doing before. And more current, you know, more current. By the way, I'll tell you something very interesting about Please. that I think you're, that your audience will love too. And you and anybody in show business, but anybody in life. Frank told me about those years when he was down. He said, there was a time, Tommy, before that. He said, I could call any recording company, any manager, any agent, any, 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 anybody, and they'd take my call. He said, I could call the president of the United States and he would take my call. He said, and then I got cold for those three years and no one would take my call. I couldn't get anybody to take my call. And then I got hot again. He said, I'm so hot, you know, that I'm now I go to a social event and I look across the room and there's that guy that wouldn't take my call. He said, and I'd look at him across the room and he couldn't look me in the eye, he put his head down. He said, but what he didn't understand is now I understood. He said, we couldn't do business. That's why he didn't take my call. He said, it's my fault. I thought we were friends. What a classic line. And all of us know that managers, managers, agents, everybody, when you got heat on you, they all want to be around you. But when the heat and, and, and you think, well, these are my friends. And, and maybe in some cases they are. A lot of cases they aren't. Oh, no. <laughs> my, my agent. I mean, uh, agents, managers, they all just come and go. I mean, there's you feel like there's a relationship, but obviously it's they want money and they want to work with somebody that's going to bring them money. I do believe that there are managers out there that do care about their clients and really, you know, somebody said to me, you want your manager to be somebody you'd hang out with and somebody you do hang out with because they understand you as a person and what you want. But I, I always tell young comedians, I tell them, get a shoe clerk, get, get, a, get a, a manager from a produce department if he believes in you. Yeah. He believes in you or she believes in you. You know, uh, you know that's what's important that they they have the same vision you have. But I thought that was a classic line. Frank Frank didn't blame the other person. He said it's my fault. I thought we were friends. We're in show business, Tommy. That's two words: show and business. business. Yeah. What is up, everybody? Hope you Kadoogly Spooglies are enjoying this episode. Before we get deeper into it, I want to tell you about a show from Next Chapter Podcast called Play On. Now. Full disclosure, I don't go to the theater that often, but Play On isn't a theater podcast. Wait, it isn't? What is it? It's something totally different. It's like the end of The Sixth Sense. Sure, each series is based on one of the classic plays by Billy Shakespeare, but this is Shakespeare like it's never been done before. The language has been updated by award-winning playwrights. The stories are set in new and unique environments, and the world comes to life in your ears thanks to amazing sound design and original music. The newest series, reimagining the classic comedy Twelfth Night in the golden era of radio, just got started. And it stars Amy Brenneman from HBO's The Leftovers and the movie Heat. So guys, people, listen to Play On Podcasts wherever you get your pods. Or go to ncpodcast.com to learn more. Do it. Come on. ncpodcast.com. There's so much there. Even the 500 website and all these great podcasts. And now... A back to the pod. So, but it's still, why the down years? Adam, do you know? Like, why is, why did he suddenly go from being the biggest star? I, I don't understand it's not on here. So well, it, that was around the Ava Gardner period. And I think maybe he had a little bit of a negative uh, 
PR image at that point because people assumed there was an affair there. So okay, I- hold on. So here we go. I've got a little bit. I'm gonna do a little spiel, uh, Tom, for the for the people that don't <laughs> you don't know, which is crazy. There are people that were born in like 20, you know, 2001, like around 9/11, that have no idea who Frank Sinatra is. There's somebody, I think we were talking to Wayne Fetterman. There's just, he's like, there's kids in the college course that he teaches at UCLA or USC that, about comedy that don't know who Jon Stewart is. And, and it's like, I don't, he's not even a huge star like at Frank, but you're just like, dude, it's like he was such a big thing in comedy. All right, this is the spiel, everybody, just so you're caught up to date. Uh, if you, Frank Sinatra, born in Hoboken, New Jersey in 1915, Italian immigrant. He had, he had large birth weight. I love that. He was 13.5. That's a trivia question we got to hold on to. Uh, but it ended up with damage uh, to his forceps, to his left cheek and neck during birth, and also a perforated eardrum. As he got older, the chairman of the board would go to his parents' bar after school to do homework, and he would sing to a player piano for spare change. He developed an interest in big band jazz, idolized Bing Crosby, learned to sing by ear, never learned to read music. Uh, but who needs it? Come on, guys. Music, we don't need to learn how to read it. He got his first big break in a local group in the 30s. Where am I? And was also singing at local clubs on smaller radio stations. In 1938, he got his first big break when he took a singing waitering job at a restaurant down the hall from the W. NEW radio stations in New York City and got noticed. His career continued to grow. He got his first record deal with Columbia in 1943 as a solo artist. By the late 40s, and see, here we go. This is where he's heating up. He's selling 10 million records a year, but his career had taken back. Here we go, Adam. You put it in there. You just covered it in mishpagash. So his friend and publicist, George Evans, died of a heart attack, and there were rumors, here we go, of an affair with Ava Gardner. Wait, was Ava Gardner with George George Evans, you got me. I didn't know that. You're telling Dude. me something I didn't know. That. Okay, well, hold up. Don't don't get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> we got to read what what, what our, my boy wrote, and that led to the destruction of his marriage with Nancy. He actually had to borrow money from Columbia Records to pay back taxes. Hollywood didn't want anything to do with him at that point. That is insane. That is insane. Dude, there's people. <laughs> Will Smith just smacked a guy and he's he's already probably getting movie. God, this is ridiculous. This world we live in. All right, where was I? Holly didn't want anything to do with him, so he turned his attention to Vegas, which would become a big part of his career later on. Poor record sales caused Columbia and MCA to drop him. His role, but here we go. Just like you said, his role from here to eternity served as a turning point. Uh, he was still recording and performing where he could, and he got a meeting with Columbia. So Capital. Capital. Sorry, I'm dyslexic. I, everything <laughs> everything says Columbia to me. Um, all right, so when did this come out? This is like all that. When did the For Here to Eternity come out? Do we know? 1951, wasn't it, Adam? <clears throat> 51, 52. Huh? I love it. I love the last two episodes we've done, listeners. I just want you to know. I love that that Tom and Brandon Boyd both asked Adam specifically. He's my li- he's my little my my lag boy my lackey. You're my lackey. <laughs> there are, I, there are people I, I love people like Adam who research things. I only go from firsthand experience. I never researched Frank. I just toured with him for 14 years in 45, 50 cities a year. That's all. And I stayed in his home six times a year. I, he, he never went to bed till the sun came up, whether we were on the road or off the road. And he wanted you to hang with him. So. He would come and get me some nights in the bungalow I stayed in on his compound. He said, come on, Tommy, let's take a ride. And we'd ride around the desert till dawn. And, and when those moments, why I treasure those moments so much, to digress a little bit, he once told a guy from the New York Times, 
guy from the New York Times said, why do you keep Tom Dreesen with you uh, on all your concerts and stuff? He said, you mean besides the fact that he's funny? And the guy said, well, yeah, besides the fact that he's funny. Frank said, well, if I'm a saloon singer, and I am, he said, then Tommy's a saloon comedian. By that, I mean, we're just a couple of neighborhood guys. And that's when I was riding around with him at night. I was a kid from the south side of Chicago, and he was a kid from Hoboken. And we didn't talk. He wasn't the great Frank Sinatra, even though he was. But we yeah. would talk about the neighborhood, the childhood, the saloons. You know, my mom was a bartender. I, I had eight brothers and sisters, and we lived in a shack. You know, um, I, I had holes in my shoes the size of a coffee cup my whole childhood. I shined shoes in taverns. I set pins in bowling alleys. I caddied in the summertime. I sold newspapers to help feed my brothers and sisters. Conversely, Frank was an only child and far much lonelier than I I, I had eight brothers and sisters around, even though my parents were alcoholic and uh, you know at one time. But we, we had so much in common. His mom and dad owned that bar, Marty O'Brien's Bar and Grill. Why it was called that, his father boxed in Hoboken under the name of Marty O'Brien. And for a reason, there was so much prejudice against Italians in those days. In Hansville, Louisiana, they, they lynched 11 Italian, Italians at one time. They hung them in Frankfurt, Illinois. They burned out an entire village of Italian people in Pennsylvania. There was more prejudice against Italians than, than any other ethnicity at that time. And, and they don't, you, no one knows this history of it. But his father, he, Frank talked about those years. His father boxed under the name of Marty O'Brien because Italians fought under Irish names as well as Jewish guys did too. Yeah. Um, what so, would, well, wait, wait, I'm Jewish. What would be my, what would be my fighter name? Joshua Adam Myers. What would I be? Barney Ross. Look there him up. It yeah. Okay. I'll take that. Look him up. Barney Ross. He was a tough, tough guy. And, um, uh, so, so before I want to, I want to get, cause I, I love that Tom. I love everything that you're saying about how you grew up. And I really want to, and, and especially that, you know, you go from, from basically, you know, growing up in poverty and fighting for every meal that you have, just suddenly hanging out and being the comedian to the chairman of the board, arguably, and, and to me, someone that I think that is 40 years old and grew up in a household like I did, understands how the gravity of someone like Frank Sinatra. And still, you listen to this record and you're like, oh, this is, this is perfect. This is a perfect piece of art and it's a perfect, uh, not shrine, but if you're, if I was ever going to say, Hey, you want to listen to Frank Sinatra, you never heard him listen to songs for swinging lovers. So, so you're, you're in comedy. How old are you? Tell me about what was going on right before your life. And then the, and then the moment you met Frank Sinatra and started working with him. I started out in show business with a comedy team. Tim Reed and I were America's first black and white comedy team. History shows we're the last. There were no comedy clubs. when we started out, we toured the North and the South. We worked all black clubs, what they affectionately called the Chitlin Circuit, Black-owned, Black-operated nightclubs. Um, the Sugar Shack in Boston, the 20 Grand in Detroit. Motown was in Detroit in those days. So there was a club they all, all the Motown acts broke their shows in at this 20 Grand. It was owned by a gangster and uh, a guy named Bill K. Bush. BK, we called him. Anyhow, so we worked there with the, the Burning Spear in Chicago, the High Chaparral, the Club Harlem in Atlantic City before there was gambling ever in Atlantic City. You know, we worked at Club Harlem. Uh, we, we, we worked all black clubs. And also we ended up working the Playboy circuit. The team stayed together six years. Uh, Tim wanted to be more of an actor. He later became Venus Flytrap on WKRP Cincinnati. He was on a show called Sister, Sister. He played the father. He went on to a, an acting career. We're the best of friends to this day. And they're doing Good. a documentary on our life right now about what it was like being America's first black and white comedy team. Then I went on to, uh, uh, from there, I, I struggled. I came out here hitchhiking up and down Sunset Boulevard, leaving my wife and kids in Chicago. 
getting on finally at the comedy store, the pressure was, there was enormous because if it, in those days there was no improvisation, there was no laugh factory. The comedy store was the only game in town. If Mitzi didn't like you, you're going back to New York, pal. You're going back to Jersey. You're going back to yeah. So the pressure of doing five minutes for her was tougher than the first tonight show, you know. But hmm. in those days, wherever you went in America, people say, what do you do for a living? You say, I'm a stand-up comedian. The next question out of their mouth was, oh, yeah? Have you ever been on Johnny Carson? And if you hadn't been on Johnny Carson in the eyes of America, you weren't a comedian yet. Yeah. One on that show, Freddie Prince got a sitcom the next day. Yeah, I, heard, I know that. I love that story. That's we crazy. We out here and, and to, you know, on the West Coast. I was going on stage at the Comedy Store every night with all these new kids. David Letterman, Jay Leno, Robin Williams, Gallagher, Elaine Boozler, Michael Keaton. The girl waiting tables was Deborah Winger. You know, I finally got my first appearance on The Tonight Show. Got bumped several times, but scored on that first appearance. And I never stopped working from that point on. I, I did 61 appearances on The Tonight Show. But Holy after, shit. The Tonight Show, I went on. Sammy Davis <laughs> saw me. Sammy took me on the road with him. A lot of singers in those days would take a comedian that could work clean you know, so I worked with Tony Orlando uh, and Don. I worked with Mac Davis, uh, Frankie Avalon, James Darren, um, uh, Smokey Robinson, uh, Gladys Knight and the Pips, Natalie Cole, and Sammy Davis Jr. They were all, because they needed an act that could work clean, you know. Um, and, and that's what you had to do to get on the Tonight Show. There was no cable in those days. So, yeah, I was doing all that. And now I'm working with Smokey Robinson and Caesars in Lake Tahoe, and Frank Sinatra's appearing next door at Harris. And I had worked there many times. So I leave stage one night. Now, uh, irony of, of life. I was seven days, I was at, at Caesars in Lake Tahoe for seven days. I could have gone any night to see Frank. For some reason, one night I said, I'm going tonight. I came off stage, it didn't even change out of my stage clothes, ran over to Harris Hotel. As I was running into the showroom, the vice president of Harris Hotel saw me and he was mm -hmm. talking to a big heavyset guy with a cigar. He said, Tommy, come here, I go over there. He said, Tommy, this is Mickey Rudin. Well, I recognized <laughs> the name, that was Frank Sinatra's lawyer and a very powerful guy in our business. He said, Mickey, this is Tom Dreesen, and I think Tom would make a great opening act for Frank Sinatra. Holy and the lawyer shit. got a fiend expression on his face like he heard that a million times. And he winked at the vice president, but I caught the wink. He said, hey, kid, if I gave you a week with Frank, would you want more than uh, 50,000? I said, Mr. Rudin, put it this way. If you gave me a week with Frank, would you want more than 50,000? He said, <laughs> oh, I like this kid. He started laughing. They gave me one week with Frank, I figure I'll get my picture taken with him hanging every bar. Back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. But the second night I was with him, he took me out to dinner, he and his wife, Barbara. And I remember like it was yesterday, he set his knife and his fork down. He said to me, I like your material and I like your style. I'd like you to do a few other dates with me if you're interested. And I didn't say, let me check my calendar. I said, yeah. <laughs> Wait, I mean, before, I want to stop you real quick. What, what was, what is it? I mean, so that's the first time you've sat down and had dinner with Frank Sinatra, I'm assuming. Yeah. What is that like? I mean, are you, what are you eating? Like, are you nervous? Like, does he order, does, I mean, I, this is the other main question. Does he order a lot of appetizers? Like no. that, I'm curious what, what Frank Sinatra's ordering, because I order apps. I get enough for everybody. I got to tell you, I got to tell you a funny story about that night. <laughs> <laughs> he ordered a fish. You know, he ordered some kind of fish. First of all, the, the owner come running up. It's a long story. When the owner didn't know, the owner didn't know Frank was going to be there. His secretary, Dorothy Ullman, made the reservation on her name for a good reason, because you put Frank Sinatra's coming, the whole town. And, well, the place is packed when we get there and there wasn't a table ready. When the owner sees Frank Sinatra walk in, we had six, six people with us. The owner's there's no room. And I, he, he says, Mr. Sinatra, I didn't know. Frank said, calm down. 
come down. He said, I'll go to the bar. We'll have a drink. We're in no hurry. It was after the show. Now, I'm looking over Frank's shoulder, and the owner's going, he's getting people, chasing people. I guess family is, they're cursing and coming in. He's getting them out of the table. Moments <laughs> later, he seats us, you know. Uh, but he, Frank didn't know he chased people out of there. You know, now, he wants to say to everybody, Frank's not right in my restaurant. So he brings the chef out and they're naming all this stuff. And Frank said, look, I just want a little fish. So now they bring the fish out. And Frank took one bite. We're talking. Frank took one bite. And he went, too salty. And he pushed the dish away. Ooh. The owner comes up and he said, Frank, he said, it's a little bit too salty. Don't worry about it. The guy said, now, the owner goes in the kitchen and you hear, it's too salty, you son of a bitch. You son of a bitch. Didn't work after that day. Anyhow, in answer to your question, all the years that I was a bartender and stuff, somehow I, I pick up on people sometimes, as you know, comedians sometimes have that sense. I picked up on Frank right from the beginning that the last thing he wanted was someone fawning over him. He had millions and millions of fans. What Frank Sinatra never knew in the 14 years I toured with him, he never knew how much in awe of him I was because I never let him see that side. He wanted a buddy, a pal. I could picture He wanted someone to hang out with, someone to talk to. You know, you know how many times I wanted to say to him, Frank, tonight when you did, you know, my way, or tonight when you, there's certain songs that you did, you know, the house I live in, he would, he would bring the arena down. And when he'd do that song, the house I live in. And I'd want it like any fan. I wanted to tell him that, but I never did. Cause I could sense that that's not what he wanted. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you have to answer that. Whose call is that? That's is probably that you? my agent. I don't <laughs> want to yell. <laughs> yeah, but turn it down. Turn it down. I'm talking to Frank here. You got any idea who I'm talking to here? Hey, what's up? My name's Lurk, and I'm the host of Lamb Goat's Van Flip Podcast. Every week, I have in-depth conversations with bands from all over the scene, big and small. We also like to keep our finger on the pulse and showcase up-and-coming bands on the show as well. So come check out Lamb Goat's Van Flip Podcast. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. So, all right, so, so you go out to that dinner and then you start working with them. So what are the shows like? What is it like backstage? I mean, tell me some, tell me some stories. This is your time. I, I, I could go through facts and stuff. I find anything that's going to come out of your mouth 10 times more interesting than anything that Adam wrote. <laughs> but, you know, again, you know, being with him, it's hard to describe. In the 14 years I toured with him, I turned down more sitcoms than most comedians get offered in a lifetime. Really? There was two things I was doing. One was I caddied when I was a boy and, and I love golf. I was playing golf on a tour called the Celebrity Players Tour. It was basketball, baseball, football, hockey, tennis, and show business people that were 10 handicap or below. So it was Johnny Bench, Mike Schmidt, Mario Lemieux, John Elway, Dan Marino, Michael Jordan, 42 Hall of Famers in show business. It was me, Matt Lauer, Brian Gumbel, um, Smokey Robinson, Frankie Avalon, <clears throat> Eddie Marinaro, Jack Wagner. Anyhow. I was the only comedian on the tour. 
and and I'm touring with Frank Sinatra, flying in his private jet all over the world, staying in his home. If you would have told me when I was a little boy, you know, and I love sports, I played a lot of sports, that one day you're going to get in an arena and you're going to compete with the greatest athletes who lived in your lifetime, I'd have said, that's impossible. That'll never happen. But it was happening. If you'd have told me when I was on my hands and knees, shining shoes in a bar, hear that guy on the jukebox singing, come fly with me. One day you're going to fly with him all over the world. And Same. I, I, I would have said that can't happen, but I was doing those things. Christopher Morley, the author once said, success is living the life you want. And God, I was living this incredible life. So in the years with him, everywhere he went, the energy, every city, if we did Omaha, Nebraska, Lincoln, Nebraska, Detroit, Chicago, Boston, Philadelphia, whatever city we were in, all over town, they were buzzing. Sinatra's in town, Frank Sinatra's in town. It was a, the buzz. Uh, I mean, it, it, the excitement, you would, we would fly in sometimes one hour before the show that his private jet would land. First, let me digress. When you would, it's time to go on a row with Frank, a limo would pull out in front, two big guys would come and carry my luggage down. They'd carry me down if I wanted to be carried down. You know? <laughs> Get in the limo, you go out to the private jet, pull up on a tarmac, you go aboard the jet, and the moment Frank put his foot on that plane, he'd say, let's go. His, his pilot's name was Johnny Spots. He'd say, let's go, Spots. And of that plane would have been ready to go. Boom. We didn't sit around and wait. Boom. We take off down the runway. Hours later, we'd land in whatever city, Buffalo, New York, or wherever. We'd land. Squad cars and limousines would rush us to the arena. We'd go put our tuxedos on, go do the show. He'd finish New York, New York. Squad cars and limousines would rush us back to the jet. We'd be flying over the arena. People weren't even in our cars yet. We're on our way to the next city. You know? Oh, I love that. I mean, so, I mean, that's, it was, it was hard to describe. His wife, Barbara, once said about being with Frank, there's never a dull moment, you know, because you never knew what to expect. He was volatile. I mean, he, he was, it's it, 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 it just, and, and I tell you, I saw him get angry at people. Yeah, yeah, give us some dirt, but all but respectable dirt, but just enough that this is the most interesting podcast we've ever done. You know, I'm half, I'm Irish and Italian. <laughs> I'm half Sicilian, and, and so was Frank half Sicilian. But he was full blood Italian, but, but, uh, he, he, you know, and I had a temper growing up and, and I boxed when I was in the service and I tried to, you know, I read hundreds of books on the powers of the mind to try to get rid of this temper that I had, you know, Yeah. when somebody, because I wasn't a big guy. And so I, in sports and stuff, I took a lot of, a lot of abuse <laughs> <laughs> and in quarter taverns, you know, anyhow, Frank, um, uh, he, he sometimes could go off on people and I saw that in him and, and, you know, and also being a bartender and both my parents being alcoholic, I thought the guys in my neighborhood, when they drank, when I was tending bar, they went through one of the three R's. Either number one, you know, after a couple of drinks, they became Rocky Marciano and they wanted to fight everybody in the place. Or after a couple of drinks, they became Rudolph Valentino and they wanted to bang every chicken. Or number three, they became Rip Van Winkle and they just dozed off. Alcohol affected them one of the three. Frank was Rocky Marciano, a couple of drinks, and he'd he could get angry. And the staff used to like me to be around them because I could see it coming. I'd been there, you know, I see it coming. And I'd say, hey, tell me about that night you and Dean and Sammy did that charity. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I could change his direction sometimes yeah. from him going, but I saw that anger in him. And I said to myself, when the day comes, if the day ever comes that he goes off on me, I honestly got Josh, I said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to grab his hand and say, thank you. Thank you. It's been great touring with you really has. I thank you for everything. And I'm walking out that door because 
I'm not going to be anybody's whipping boy either, as much as I love the guy. Yeah. But that day never happened. It never happened. I was fortunate. It never happened. We had this great relationship. In the beginning, he was the boss of the tour. As time went by, we became buddies. We came two guys and hang out and, and come on, Tommy, let's go take a ride. And then at the end of his life, he became more like a father to me. And in uh, one of the last moments I had with him alive, um, he, we didn't know if he knew he was never going to sing again. We knew it, you know, because he was getting ill, but he never brought it up. And I was at his home and I had to leave. I stayed to visit him for a while. I said, I got to run. And he, he said, where are you going, Tommy? I said, oh, my ex-wife is in town. And, and he had met her. He said, oh, tell her. I said, hi. And the kids. And, uh, <clears throat> and uh, he said, you know, I love you, Tommy. Now, he never, ever said that to me. He always would sock me on the jaw. I'll, I'll send you some pictures where he's socking me on the Please. jaw. He'd, he'd say, love you, pal. And he'd sock me on the jaw. And, and that's how he said. But this day, he was sitting. He wasn't well. And he was sitting. He had like a blanket on. And he looked up at me. And I said, I'll see. Okay, uh, Frank, I'll see. He said, you know, I love you, Tommy. And, and it stunned me. It took me back because he never said that. And I started stammering. And I said, yeah, yeah, I, 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 I love you too, Frank. I said, and I don't know why I said this. I blurted it out. And I could have bit my tongue. I said, hey, get well, and we'll go back on the road again. And he put his hand on my cheek. He said, you're going to have to go on the road by yourself from now on, Tommy. And oh, man. I knew that he knew he was never going to sing again. And it, it got me. And I, and I said, okay. And I walked outside. <clears throat> his wife, Barbara, came out. And I had tears in my eyes. You know? She said, are you okay? I said, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. I said, but, oh, that was pretty tough. And she said, keep coming to visit him, Tommy. He enjoys it when you come over. I got in the car and I was driving home and I was thinking, Frank Sinatra is never going to sing again. That's the saddest show business news I ever yeah. heard. Yeah, no, I can imagine. So, since you'd been around him for so long, how many years did you work with him? You said 14 years? 14, yeah. 14 years. What do you most admire about Frank? You know, you will never, ever, ever know, nor will the world ever, ever know. <clears throat> just how benevolent he was. He did more for humanity than you'll ever, ever know. If he heard that a woman in Albuquerque, New Mexico, living in a boxcar with 11 kids, had a child that had needed brain surgery, the next day all those bills were paid, and the person delivering that information didn't know where it came from either. If you ever read a book called The Magnificent Obsession by Lloyd C. Douglas, uh, they made a movie of it later. Its predecessor was a book called Dr. Hudson's Secret Journal. And in it is a secret of success. If you want to be successful in life, you want to be a, 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 an actor, a, a singer, a comedian, <clears throat> an airline pilot, whatever you want to be. In the book, it says, once you ask, you know, the, the biblical phrase, ask and you shall receive. Once you ask, you're God. This is what I want. You've got to believe that with all your heart and soul, that prayer is going to be answered got to believe that you ask and you shall receive. But from that moment on, you got to look around and look at his less fortunate children and try to help them. And if you do, <clears throat> you have to do it in secrecy. And it's biblical in nature. If you do it in secrecy, you know that within 30 days, your master will reward you towards your endeavor. That's what the book is about, the secret of success. And Frank lived that. You know, uh, one, one time coming out of the Waldorf Astoria in New York, we were on our way to do a gig. <clears throat> we went out the back way because if he went out the front, he get mobbed. And we were going out the back way. The security was taking us to the limo. And a woman jumped out of the doorway. 
a man, uh, the, the, the doorman told me she had been there for like five hours. And she started screaming, Mr. Sinatra, please, Mr. Sinatra, please, please. And, and, and he, they were rushing him in the limo, please. And he got out of the limo and he, she kept screaming. The security was holding her back. He got out of the limo and he went up to her and he said, what is it? She said, Mr. Sinatra, my husband is home very, very ill. If you'll sign this autograph, it would mean the world to him. He's terribly ill. Frank said, sure. And he signed the autograph and she said, oh, what beautiful cufflinks. And, and his cuff, they were over a thousand dollar cufflinks. I know where he got them. At. And he, he said, thank you. He signed the autograph. He took the cufflinks off. He said, give these to your husband. She said, no, 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 I don't want them. I was just admiring them. He said, no, I want your husband to have them. Now we get in the car and I said, Frank, that was beautiful, but why did you do that? He said, Tommy, if you possess something that you can't give away, then you don't possess it, it possesses you. And he not only talked that talk, he walked that talk. I, I, he said to me, Tom, Aristotle Onassis had billions of dollars. He had yachts, private yachts, he had private jets, he had mansions. And the second he died, it transferred. None of that, that shirt you have on your back, Tommy, if you die tomorrow, that belongs to somebody else. So none of it is ours, we're only using it. And that's what I admired him about the moment. You had to be very careful around him, Josh. You couldn't say to him, she would a beautiful watch, he'd take it off and give it to you. Oh my God, I'd be telling him everything. I'd be like, ah, man, that, you know, that, that college degree that that person got, that's, that looks like a good college degree. Do you mind uh, sending me to a nice four-year institution, Frankie? Come he'd on, man. If I would do it, and that'd be the only time. I didn't want to, I, you know. Yeah, you got to save it. There's <laughs> an old Sicilian thing. And I tell you what, funny you say that, I, I cracked him up one night when I'd only been with him about a year. I had done a film and we were talking about that. And he said to me, oh, you know what you should have done? And he said, telling me what I should have done with that role. I said, well, I couldn't do that because the director, you know, he, he, I said, you know, I'm not a, he said, you're a star in my eyes. I said, well, thank you, <laughs> but I'm yeah. not a star. Like you're a superstar. I said, and the power you have, he said, Tommy, you have power because you have my power. Now the whole table got quiet and I, and I'd only been with him, but here he said, if you ever need anything, you call me. And he said, Barbara, to his wife, he said, Tommy ever calls, I want to know. And everybody looked at me like, you know, like I was working or something. I said, well, look, and it's a Sicilian thing. I said, I said, look, if Barbara ever tells you I'm on the phone, put a chair down next to the phone and sit down because I'm not going to ask you for two tickets to the Ingerbert Humperdinck show. <laughs> he cracked up because he, he knows if somebody a power ever says to you, if you ever need anything, you don't waste that on some bullshit thing. You, know. you do it some big, of course. Yeah, of course. Um, all right. Let's. Uh, did he ever well, that's talk? What I to heard you? about him. I went a long way with that. But what you'll never know is that benevolence that in his heart, this feeling he had for humanity, he really did. And you know what? You can't be a good comedian. I don't think unless you're vulnerable. You can't be a good artist. And I think you have to be vulnerable. In a song, Frank was painfully vulnerable. While did he had this tough exterior, in a song, he wasn't. Did he ever talk to you about the music? Like, did he ever talk about this record around you, Songs for Swinging Lovers? You know, he, he talked about that was with a change in his style. We talked about that one time, how he began to jazz up tunes as from being a crooner like Bing, you know, uh, and, and, and jazzing up tunes. And, and that he changed that style, you know, and that, and that album was the beginning of that. Songs and, and so did, I mean, what were the songs that he loved that, you know, from this record? I mean, that, that he loved the most. I mean, cause a lot of these, you know, you make me feel so young. I love it happened in Monterey. It's just, you just got a little pep in your step. I mean, I've got you under my skin is just, you know, one of the best, the, I mean, it's written by Cole Porter and it's, 
it's like the, I remember when I really got into it was when he did the duet with Bono off of duets, which was like a big record in my household when that came out. But I mean, these are some of his staples. I mean, do you, do you, did he ever mention anything about this record or, or anything to you or, yeah, or he, the songs? You know, I asked him like, like a dumb fan one time, I said to him on the plane, I said, you know, I know this is a stupid question. Is there ever, is any song, one song that you, that lit you up? He said it depended on the era and, and what I was going through in life. But there were yeah. so songs, you know, he, he, that, that he said you couldn't pinpoint one, but there were so many songs. He did say to me one time on the plane, I did some shows with Michael Bublé, who I really, really like. I think Michael Bublé carries on that era. And a yeah, lot. he really does. But, but I, 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 and, and, uh, but I, Frank said, I hope, he said, Tom, I don't care that Frank Sinatra lives on. And that was very humble of him to say that. He said, but I want the music to live on, where people understand the lyric and the meaning of the lyric. What did the writer feel the night the writer took pen in hand? And, and, and that's, you know, I, I'm repeating something I said earlier, but that's what he wanted to live on. That, that, you know, that not, not necessarily him or, or any music, but that, you know, that's why he gave, Frank Sinatra is the only artist I've ever known that I ever worked with. Every single song, he told you who wrote that song and how it was arranged. You know, he, he gave those people credit. He felt how important the writing of a song was. You know? what, 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 do, what is something that people get wrong about Frank Sinatra? You know, um, I, I think that what they really get wrong was how deeply they, his, his persona is tough guy. You know, a tough guy and, and, and a scrapper and all that stuff. They, 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 what they get wrong about him was how vulnerable he really was. And he was in a song and how sensitive he was, you know. The, the, the problem with Frank, truthfully, and, and it's not, I'm not telling stories out of school, he had mood swings. Uh, toward the end of his life, the, he was on a, a thing called Alabel. You know, he once said, way before I met him, I think it was with Walter Winchell, one of those old black and white interviews, he said, I'm a 24 karat manic depressive. He said, I go through ups and downs, you know. Um, and uh, and, and, and that, a lot of that came out in his songs. What they don't realize, again, was how sensitive he really was you wouldn't think he was but he was very sensitive yeah but they, but but, they, but i love how you mentioned the temper what was the and i what was the like have you, what was the most you'd ever seen his temper come out <laughs> uh wow i you know i wrote a book and this is a cheap plug for my book no please plug away because i would do this this episode's yours dude you do it this is I should have brought, I got the book. It's called, I, it, it came out during the COVID, so I couldn't go on a book tour. It's called Still Standing. The subtitle is My Journey from Streets and Saloons to the Stage and Sinatra. I love it. But, but the reason I say Still Standing, I've been a stand up comedian for 52 years now. I've been doing stand up comedy. And, but also, I've been knocked down a lot in my life, physically knocked down, that you're going to read the book, but I kept getting back up again. I mean, life knocked me down, going through marital problem, all those things, but I kept getting back up again. So that's the, the double entendre of the title, still standing. You can get it on Amazon. By the way, it's got over 405, over 400 five-star reviews. So I'm real and, well, and, and Tom, we'll promote, we'll, we'll give you a really big promotion at the beginning and the end, and we'll set the link in so people can find it. But in that book, there are so many stories about Frank. I mean, there's, there's, there's stories about my life. It's, it's really my life to get to Frank. Frank is one of the last chapters, you know, but it, there's stories in there that, that, uh, that you'll be, uh, you know, uh, there's a story in there that I, I, I can't go through here, it's too long, but he saved Johnny Carson's life 
from a mob hit. No question about it. No one could have done it but Frank. In New York was a, a, a guy named Joey Gallo. They called him Crazy Joey Gallo. And Johnny Carson, when he was a new talk show host in the Tonight Show in New York, before he came out to the West Coast, he'd only been a, 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 like a star a couple of years, did something real dumb one night with Joey Gallo's Gumad, you know, and, and, I, and I'll, I'll explain that to you non-Italians who don't understand. In the Italian world, especially where I grew up in the neighborhoods, if there was an, if you had a girlfriend and you're an Italian guy, she was your girlfriend if you were single. But if you were married and you had a girlfriend, she's your gumad. Yeah. And gumad, yeah. gumads are precious. I always say in Chicago, there were three holidays for Italian guys. There was St. <laughs> Joseph's birthday, St. Rocco's birthday, and December 23rd. Oh, <laughs> that was gumadi Christmas Eve. <laughs> Porn, Satan, drugs, therapy. It's not just the list of what I'm up to this weekend. I'm comedian Kiki Anderson, and those are just a handful of the taboo topics I've poked and prodded at so far on my podcast, Indecent, the show where we peel at the wallpaper of polite society. Each episode digs into the dark underbelly of our culture to dissect the things we aren't allowed to talk about around the dinner table, featuring conversations with comedians, activists, journalists, academics. They all help me figure out the who, what, and why behind what is and isn't acceptable behavior. Indecent with Kiki Anderson, where NSFW meets LMAO. Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm joking about, uh, yeah, I said there's three three holidays, you know, and, and December 23rd was Gumadi Christmas Eve. But Joey Gallo walked into Jilly's Bar on West 48th at two of his Gumadis. So then, you know, Johnny Carson, Joey went in the back room to talk to the two guys, and Johnny did something really dumb. Uh, he was young, and he was drinking. And, and by Johnny's own admission, Johnny said he was a very bad drinker. And uh, he, a couple of drinks, and he would act silly sometimes. But he did something dumb. And when he did it, Joey Gallo wanted him dead. Joey Gallo, when he, when he found out about it, wanted him dead. And all that's in the book. And only Frank Sinatra could have saved his life. And the only reason I told this story, Frank, uh, Jilly Rizzo told me the story. And three weeks later, Frank Sinatra told me that story verbatim. And the only reason I told the story is that uh, Johnny Carson's lawyer, uh, Henry Bushkin, uh, wrote a book and he was trying to take credit for saving Johnny from Joey Gallo. At that time, Henry Bushkin was a lawyer in his 20s. There was no way Joey Gallo, Joey Gallo didn't listen to the five Dons of New York, paid no attention to them. And that's why he was eventually, uh, they eventually killed him on Mulberry Street over at Umberto's Clam House. So Joey Gallo didn't listen to the five Dons of New York. He's not going to listen to some young lawyer. Only Frank Sinatra could have saved him. And, 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 and it's hair-raising of what Frank had to do to get Joey to do this. Uh, what, what, I mean, what, what Joey did to Frank, and it, anyhow, it's too long a story for me to tell here, but it, you'll find that in the book. It's, it's worth reading. You know? Go out and get everybody. I'm, I'm listening. Fleece Army, all the listeners, go out and get this book. Uh, I'm going to read it. Um, so I'm going to ask these a couple questions, and then I've got a couple other ones, but I want to get these out of the way. This is... Um, this is just I, I, I'm I'm so uh, fascinated um, by your relationship with him. What is your favorite Frank Sinatra story? What is that that the the pinnacle? What do you got? Wow, I mean, I mean, uh, you know, <clears throat> there's for me. I used to take my shoe shine box. Yeah. Now, you can Frank Sinatra story, so I'm giving you a Tom Dreesen story, so that isn't fair. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, 
whenever I, whenever I worked with Frank, it was always a joy. But when going back to Chicago, I used to take my shoeshine box uh, uh, from the south side of Chicago downtown to the Chicago theater. And in the alley there, I would try to get, the, you could get bigger tips down there. I'd try to get the people before they went in the theater or when there was an intermission. And I'd see these stars and, on, on the marquee. And for me to go back and see my name on the marquee with Frank Sinatra, and I'll send you this picture, by the way. You know, I mean, th to watch this guy in my hometown, you know, I'd do my show and then there'd be like a little pause. And then this Frank Sinatra would walk out and without an introduction and thousands of people would cheer and cheer and cheer and cheer. And he would just stand there. And when they finally come down, he would go, this is my kind of town, Chicago is. And the room would erupt and, and it would just go on and on. I mean, to watch him in any city, everywhere we went, this is the kind of reaction he got in Dallas, Texas, and in Des Moines, Iowa, wherever we were, that this is the kind of reaction he got. But when we went back to New Jersey, when we would appear at Garden State Art Center, and this is their homeboy now, this is the kid from Hoboken who brought all the fame to New Jersey, you know, in the Hoboken. And now when he walked out on stage in his home state, I mean, he, he, it would be five minutes of nothing but cheering before he could even get that first note out, you know. Uh, that's, that's what I, I enjoyed watching that. I mean, uh, I, I, you know, I, I tell you, one of my favorite times was alone with him. We were in the car down in the desert and, and again, he came and got me out of my bungalow and, and we rode around till the sun came up. And as we were getting near the compound coming back, he told me something very personal, a real personal story. And after he finished it, he said, I should not have told you that. And I was driving. I said, well, I won't go any further than this car. He said, I know, I know, but I, I, sh I shouldn't have told you that. I said, well, you know, it's not like we're strangers, you know, we're friends. And I paused for a second and jokingly, I looked at him and I said, Strangers in the night, exchanging hmm. glances. He said, oh, my God, if you're going to sing that song, get in key. He, <laughs> he said, strangers in the night, exchanging. And I said, wondering in the night, what were the... Now, we were doing this song back and forth as we pulled into the compound and parked the car. And he, you know, again, socked me on the job. Good night, Tommy. I said, and I'm going back to my bungalow. And I'm thinking, if I went back to my neighborhood in the corner tavern where I used to attend bar and hang out, and I told all those guys, guess what I was doing? I was singing Strangers in the Night with Frank Sinatra. They'd say, get the hell out of here. You're full of shit. But it happened. It happened. And, and, and it's a moment I'll never, two of my favorite moments with him. Who knew that this kid who shined shoes in bars with holes in his shoes and hearing Frank Sinatra in the jukebox was one day going to sing a song in a car with him. It's that full circle thing that happens to us that we never forget. And, and uh, you know, that's one of my favorite moments, anyhow. I can't only really imagine what that's like. Yeah, I, I get, well, that's the beautiful thing about, about show business and about life. Um, and I, I've said this many times on the podcast, but I feel like it's apt right now is, um, I think me and me and Bill Burr were, were doing something. We, oh, we, uh, he, when he was headlining Madison Square Garden, 
uh, before he he did his show, he rented a bunch of drum. He rented a drum set and a bunch of amps because he loves playing music, and I play music uh, with the jam. And so he was like, "Hey man, let's set up some stuff and we'll jam at Madison Square Garden." And I just you know we're playing in one of the most prolific, one of the most important venues in the world historic venues and i remember afterwards we're backstage and i'm just like dude this is that was so cool and he, he just said like you see what happens when you follow your dreams yeah cool shit happens when you follow your dreams and it's it's true i mean so to be that kid from chicago like you worked hard you're a good dude you're funny and you were just you could always say it's right place right time or the universe you did something in a past life man that just like just got you here. And I, I think it's, I think it's incredible here. Let's, let's get you out of here. I, I could, I could talk more stories, but um, being that we, you know, and look, and if all the listeners, we could have focused on the record, listen to the album. The album is incredible. But when you have someone like Tom on the podcast, who knows this man, you, you know, fuck the songs. It's about getting to know the person because an, a person like Frank Sinatra is so big the the songs are it's the story of the man is more important than the music that's why he had a great voice other people had great voices what frank sinatra represented and his aura just like you know you, you, that's what we talk about so so judge we got to go by this record i ask every guest these questions i'm very curious to get your answers we're talking about songs for swinging lovers off of this record tom what is your favorite song from this record from the record, well, I mean, it, it would be hard for me, probably, probably, um, you know, I've got you under my skin really resonates, you know, um, I like that, I've, you know, I, I, Penny's from Heaven, I like the way he swings that song, every time it rains, it rains, yeah. and, you know, uh, uh, you know, I, I guess, um, that would probably be it. I, I would say. I would say that would be it. Okay. Okay. Now this, I, I'm going to go with. I've got you under my skin. I think it's one of the greatest songs ever written. Cole Porter I, I is. Would, I will agree with you on that. I mean, but you're looking, dude. I'm looking at the people that wrote this music. I mean, you're getting the best of the best. You're getting Gershwin. You're getting, you know, uh, Ralph Reed. I mean, it's just. Cole Porter, you can't go wrong. All right, now this is a loaded question because it's hard. I always feel weird having to ask this when we talk about how great the artist is uh, and great the album is, but what song on this record do you skip over? Like, what's the one that you go, well, you know, I've already listened to it before. I don't need to hear it again. Is Making there anything Whoopi. on here? Making Whoopi? That's funny. I, I, I picked Making Whoopi too. Not my favorite version. Now, speaking of Making Whoopi, all right, this is a two-part question. All right, but you got you got to answer it. Everybody answers this. Everybody's done it, and I'm I'm not cleaning it up just because it's you and I respect you. Uh, is this a fuckable album? And if you're gonna add a song to a music to a sex music playlist, what so, What's the one song you're picking off? So first question is, can you fuck to this record? <laughs> can you put it on and let it ride? Uh, well. You know, I, I, I guess it, I guess I, w I would say maybe you know, uh, you know maybe maybe it happened in Monterey. Uh, uh, you brought a, a new kind of love to me. Yeah, Sammy Khan thing. I, I might say that. But can I tell you? I'm glad you brought that up. Can I? I want to tell you a quick story. Please, please, oh, dude. Worcester, Massachusetts. We're working the Centrum. After the show was over, I went across the street to a restaurant. And I was with the guys in a band, you know, Ron Anthony and the guitar player and stuff. And Ron Anthony said, see those two young girls across from two pretty young girls. He said, all during Frank's show, they wept. You know, they, they all during Frank's show, they were 
weeping. They laid flowers at his feet while he was singing, and they went back to their seat and they they wept during the show. I said, really? I think I'm pretty young to be Sinatra fans. As we were leaving, I had my coat there because it was wintertime there, and I was at the coat check thing, and the two young girls walked up getting their coats, and one of them said, oh, we enjoyed your show. You made us laugh, blah, blah, blah. And I said, can I ask you a question? I said, "Um, you know, how old are you? She said, I'm 20. And I said, how old's your girlfriend? She said, that's my sister. She's 18. I said, oh, the reason I'm asking, you seem awful young to be Sinatra fans. And Ron Anthony, our guitar player here, said that you laid flowers at Mr. S's feet and you wept during the show. And she said, yes. She said, my mother and father were huge Sinatra fans. And we grew up listening to his music all the time. And they actually had a large and large picture on the mantle uh, in our living room of one of his albums. She said, and my mom and dad died last year four months apart. My dad died first, and then my mom died four months later. She said one night, my mom, sitting at her bedside, she was telling my sister and I that her and dad used to make love to Frank Sinatra's music, and they were actually conceived to his music. So I t- love it. She said, tonight, while we were hearing him sing, we felt our parents' presence there, and that's why we wept you know, during the show. And, and I made a terrible mistake. I, I was so taken by their story, I should have gotten their names. Because a few weeks later, I was staying at Frank's house, and he was mentioning a lot of young people come to the show lately. And he said, "You noticed that, Tom?" And I told him that story. And he, I, he first thing he said to me, "Did you get their names?" Because he would have sent them something. And and uh, and, and I regret that to the, to this day. You know. And, and last thing I want to say is it about this. Steve Lawrence having dinner with with us one night. Steve was a friend of Frank's. Steve mm-hmm. Lawrence was a very, very, very good singer. Steve Lawrence said to Frank, you know, you ruined it for all the rest of us. He said, because once they heard you sing the song, they knew how it's supposed to be sung. Yep. I, I don't doubt it. I, I don't think the the other versions of, of uh, some of these songs are, are remembered as much as what Frank did. And you know what? I, I just... Uh, this has really made me, you know, my dad always used to mention this and, and I, I kind of think it can kind of explain why I am what I am. The first concert I ever saw was Frank Sinatra. Uh, but I was in utero. I was in my mom's belly. It was at the Capitol Center. And uh, I think after talking to you and doing this podcast, that's the reason I mix music with comedy. No, there it is, people. We figured it out. There you go. I, being I, in the Capitol Center, have my mom eat those shitty nachos, and you know, <laughs> it's all it all comes together. Tom, this is great. No, you got more, please. I got no. I got to tell you how much I enjoyed this. I'm going to have to leave now because that's probably the, the guy calling. I got to go do an ESPN show. But I'd like no. to do it again if we could ever do it again. Maybe even in studio if I'm in New York. Uh, please I, I see you again. It would be fun, dude. You rule, man. Do what you got to do. I can't thank you enough for coming on, buddy. Thank you. Thank you. You got it, buddy. Later, guys. What I tell you, what I tell you, the one and only Tom Driesen. Uh, Follow him on all social media at Tom Driesen Comic. Go to his website, TomDriesen.com, and get his book, Still Standing, My Journey from Streets and Saloons to the Stage and Sinatra. All right, new music. We have Norwegian singer and multi-instrumentalist Bernhoft. And you're listening to Call Out Kids uh, from their 2021 album, Dancing on My Knees. And you can find the links to the website, the500podcast.com. And we want your music, so send it to us. Send us your songs to 500podcast at gmail.com. I don't give a fuck if they're good or bad. We will play them. Next week, it's a Beatles, Hard Day's Night. Listen to it. Hard day, we'll
Hi, this is Chad Nicefield. And this is Justin Press. We're the host of Making Waves, the Shiprock Podcast, a part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. We're inviting you to sail away with us on an epic journey in musical enlightenment. Every week, we bring you only the best artists in rock music and discuss everything from the cruise to the stage to the saga of being a professional recording artist. We'll have lots of special guests along the way, so tune in every week. Your stateroom is available every Monday morning, so welcome aboard. Hey, this is Scott from Fly on the Call. Each week I speak to a different musician, whether they're in an established band like Silverstein or The Wonder Years, or a band on the rise like Spanish Love Songs, Origami Angel, or Meet Me at the Altar. We discuss music and lyrics, the successes and challenges of being in a band, and more, as we get to the core of each artist. The show features musicians of diverse genres and backgrounds, so there's always a chance I'll be talking to your new favorite band. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. Next Chapter Podcasts.